You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome to Let's Therapize That Shit. Today, we are going to be, you guessed it, therapizing some shit. So this episode, I'm going to be using the skill of turning the mind, which is a DBT skill. And for those who are new to the podcast, first off, welcome. (laughs) And second off, uh, DBT is kind of my favorite type of therapy, the therapy that I have found the most useful and effective for me personally. It stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. There's four main areas of skill in DBT, uh, mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. But none of that explains what a dialectic is. Um, Dialectics are balancing opposites while entering the paradox of yes and no, true and not true, at the very same time. That's from the DBT skills manual. Uh, I have a link in the description, specifically interpersonal effectiveness handout 14. Uh, When I read or quote from somebody else's work, I will use a bit of reverb like I just did and also give attribution so it'll sound like I'm in an opera house or more like a opera house bathroom. Um, At any rate, getting back to dialectics, uh, the quote I just read from the DBT manual is not not overly helpful. Uh, I find it's easier to understand by using examples. So here are some examples like I can love someone and hurt them. Someone can love me and hurt me. Uh, I can want to be alone and also want connection with others. My experience is valid, and this other person's totally opposite experience is valid. There's a bunch more examples in the DBT skills manual on interpersonal effectiveness handout 16A and 16B. And anytime I mention a handout in the DBT manual, I include it in the episode description. So if you want to know all of the, the handouts that I reference in a given episode, Just check out the description. They're all listed there. So now that we've gone over DBT and dialectics, uh, we can get into today's episode where I'll be using the skill turning the mind. I am recording the intro and outro for this episode on March 15th, 2022. And I recorded the body of the episode, the recording you're about to hear on February 17th, 2022, almost a month ago. And I don't know if I've ever explained why I have such a lag time between recording the main bulk of an episode and then recording the intro and outro for it. Part of it is 
just how it shook out when I started. I recorded a bunch of episodes before I even launched the podcast. So I had a long lag time between having recorded them and then publishing them. But as I was editing episodes and getting them ready to publish, I realized it would actually be useful to have like some context, an intro that maybe alerts listeners to kind of what they're about to hear, an outro that goes over main themes or patterns that I notice, or if I was ineffective during the bulk of the recording, I can clean that up in the outro. And it typically, just because of how recording has gone, it's about a three weeks to a month between when I record something and then when I get it ready to publish and I'm doing the intro and outro for it. So in the recording you're about to hear, you'll notice that it takes me a hot minute to actually get into using the skill, the turning the mind skill. And by a hot minute, I mean, it's like halfway through the episode. I start off by doing a lot of observation of where I am emotionally, how I'm feeling. And there's a reason for that, which you'll hear me describe in the recording. I'm about to play for you, but I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, Before I dive in, quick reminder that if you like this podcast, if you find it helpful and you'd like to support me, I have a Patreon set up. There's a link in the description. And also, I love listener communication. Like, I would love to hear from you about your experience using these skills, questions or observations you have, anything at all. So on that note, let's go ahead and dive in. Take it away, past joy. So one of my homework assignments from my therapist has been to practice the skill turning the mind. Turning the mind is a distress tolerance skill. Specifically, it's a reality acceptance skill. Per distress tolerance handout 10, the reality acceptance skills are, you guessed it, radical acceptance, turning the mind, willingness, half smiling and willing hands, and allowing the mind mindfulness of current thoughts. So turning the mind is detailed on distress tolerance handout 12. In short, turning the mind is like facing a fork in the road. You have to turn your mind toward the acceptance road and away from the road of rejecting reality. Turning the mind is choosing to accept. The choice to accept does not itself equal acceptance. It just puts you on the path. I'm going to read that again. The choice to accept does not itself equal acceptance. It just puts you on the path. The reason that my therapist has assigned me this is because I'm preparing, well, we are preparing, getting me ready to start doing exposure therapy. And some of the things that get in the way of me being effective are when I spiral and get deep down into emotion mind and start having self-harm ideation and suicidal ideation and the like. And so turning the mind is kind of like snatching myself off the brink. If getting into that emotional state is like a glass of water falling off the table, there's a bunch of different points where you can, where I can intercept that glass of water 
I can catch it in midair. I can catch it right before it falls off the edge. I can grab it while it's sitting on the edge and move it further away. And there's kind of different things, different skills I use to accomplish those things. I've been practicing really hard, actually, for the last couple of weeks, catching myself before I tip over and before I get into that really like dark mental place. So I've been like grabbing the glass of water and scooting it away from the edge. Well, today we have tipped over. The glass has fallen off the counter and my goal is to catch it before it hits the floor. Vulnerability factor, I forgot my morning meds yesterday. Chief one of those is sertraline or Zoloft. And so I took it later in the day. Typically when I do that, when I have a, when I'm ineffective at remembering to take my sertraline specifically at the correct time, there's usually about a day delay and then I feel like shit. Getting specific, I feel a lot of despair and hopelessness, which are flavors of sadness. So I figured this would be a good opportunity to practice doing turning the mind while the glass is falling through the air on its way to the floor, because I'm feeling pretty hopeless today. And I read a thing. It's lovely when I encounter other people who've said something more eloquently than I have access to in a given moment. This is a Twitter thread posted by at Sacral Empress, S-A-C-R-A-L-E-M-P-R-E-S-S, and it is as follows. I am the only family member choosing to actively heal. I have to sit in my own shit every day. So I'm going to be emotional, isolated, moody, tired, and whatever the fuck I want to be. I'm unraveling years and years of trauma and nobody gets to decide how I process it. I'm taking my time to feel my way through. I can't explain how tiring and painful it's been. I take time for myself and get shamed for it. I have to baby myself and nurture myself because I wasn't given the proper love and care I deserved as a child. I'm learning to take back my power, set boundaries, love myself, stop sabotaging, and stop giving in to my unhealthy temptations and addictions. I get sick to my stomach having to revisit my childhood. I have to properly guide myself every fucking day. My emotions were invalidated. I was abused by people I trusted. I was insulted and growing up having to worry about everything but myself. I don't answer calls. I don't reach out. I don't care about growing certain relationships and I don't owe anybody anything. I suffered in silence for so long and had no choice but to end it all. I was so ready to give it all up, distracting myself with drugs and sex because those were the only times I wasn't focusing too much on why I was sad and lonely in the first place. I lost myself. I was lost in cycles, begging for peace because I was tired of feeling miserable, but the cycle continued. I was paranoid, numb, indulgent, insecure, and had to sit with these different diagnoses because I wasn't sure what the fuck was wrong with me. I know for a fact I hurt people. I pushed so many people away. I was wearing this mask hoping it would cover my pain and keep those around me from seeing the disgusting things I saw when I looked at myself. I was feeling unworthy and decided it'd be best to hide. It seems like there should be more to that. Oh, that was the end of the tweet. Anyway, 
that was a Twitter thread, <laughs> not just a single tweet, by the way. Not everything in that is applicable to me. I'm certainly not the only family member working on actively healing. My sisters and I are all working really hard. I don't get a lot of shame from my family, but I know there's not a lot of understanding. There's some concern that I'm doing too much, like too much therapy. People who haven't been to therapy can look at it from the outside and go, why on earth would you choose that? It sounds excruciating. And it can be. It can be really painful, but it's the sort of pain that has a purpose, like pulling out a splinter. Sitting there with my foot up on the bathroom counter and not touching the splinter in the bottom of my foot. In that moment, it doesn't hurt. As soon as I get in there with a pair of tweezers, it starts to hurt again. And it's actually more painful. The act of extracting it is more painful than walking on it. And then it's done. The splinter is out. So there is an increase in immediate pain in the short term with an overall decrease in pain in the long term. And for folks who haven't actually sat with an emotion long enough to feel it dissipate, sitting with an emotion can feel like torture because your brain doesn't know yet that, hey, if I just let it come and then go, it actually does go. But at any rate, my family doesn't understand. There's some judgment about therapy in and of itself, that therapy means that there's something horribly wrong with you. And I can't really say that I've done much to correct that assumption. There is a lot of things that are pretty dramatically not functioning in me. As the daughter who has been hospitalized multiple times for suicidal ideation and self-harm ideation, who has spent two weeks in the last year in psych wards, who has self-harmed, who has had a lot of very destructive sex with strangers, I can see that me going to therapy doesn't really offer an alternative view. <laughs> and it really kind of confirms that therapy is for people who have things that have gone horribly, horribly wrong. And that's not the only reason to go to therapy. But getting back to this Twitter thread, she says, I have to baby myself and nurture myself because I wasn't given the proper love and care I deserved as a child. There's a lot of grief that I experience as I kind of dig in and start unearthing things and tending to them. It's confusing because I had a very lovely childhood. I was born in the early 80s, so I had a childhood for the most part before the internet. I mean, I didn't get access really to the internet until the very late 90s when I was in eighth grade, probably. There was no social media and I rode my bike. I would go down to the neighborhood pool to go swimming by myself. I would bike down to the McCullough's department store and buy pogs because I collected pogs. My family didn't have a lot of money, so our vacations were to go camping. We would take a week and go camp at a reservoir in Northern California. And it was super dusty and super hot. And we would go and soak in the water and then get out and dry off and then go back in. I played outside a lot, read a lot of books, 
kind of had a typical lower middle class suburban white upbringing. My parents were very loving, very supportive. And that's why it's weird to have so much shit to unpack because it feels it feels like a fucking Trojan horse. I never saw it coming. And as I'm unpacking it now, it's that fucking ichthyosaur, guys. For those of you who are not familiar, I told a story uh, several episodes ago about a group of folks, some workers who were doing landscaping at a reservoir in the UK. Episode 11 is where I talked about this. So these folks were digging around and doing landscaping, and they found a dinosaur bone. And not only that, they found a fucking ichthyosaur, like a dinosaur that swims. It's like 30 feet long. This thing is huge. It's bigger than a bus. And like they didn't come across the entire skeleton all at once. They came across a bone and then did a little bit of digging and found more. And then did a little bit of digging and then found even more. And that's also kind of the feedback that I get from my family is this like, why do you keep digging? You just keep finding more. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's not that the digging is creating the trauma. <laughs> the digging is uncovering the trauma that was already there and impacting my life, but in a way that was invisible to me. So it was, you know, the man behind the curtain, the machinery was running automatically. All of these things have been running automatically. And I am popping the hood, pulling back the curtain, mixing so many metaphors. And it's a lot. I was talking to my sister today. Hi, Ruth. Just about how weird it is to know more about this shit than our parents, than the generation before us, to like be aware of how emotions work how trauma works. And when I say be aware, I mean, we are by no means experts. We're not even experts in ourselves. And I'm sure, I mean, it feels like the world has undergone light years of growth in terms of emotional intelligence around this sort of stuff in the last, I don't know, five years. I can't imagine what our understanding is going to look like in the next decade or in 20 years. So all of this is relative. And it's just very weird to see this stuff and have the previous generation have no idea. And they were, of course, the generation that raised us. So I keep having all this grief come up. And the thought, you know, fuck, if only it had been different. What might my life have looked like? Getting back to this Twitter thread again, <laughs> she says... I get sick to my stomach having to revisit my childhood. I have to properly guide myself every fucking day. My emotions were invalidated. I was abused by people I trusted. I was lost in cycles, begging for peace because I was tired of feeling miserable, but the cycle continued. I distracted myself with drugs and sex because those were the only times I wasn't focusing too much on why I was sad and lonely in the first place. Oh yes, audience. The sex part. Not the drugs part, but the sex part. It's really, it's, it's seeking dissociation. It's seeking oblivion. At least it was for me. So I'm just going to talk about how I'm feeling for a little bit. Set the stage before I work on turning the mind. So 
My former partner broke up with me over six months ago now. Yikes. And I have been intentionally not getting on dating apps, with the exception of a brief period of time. I think it was at the beginning of January. Maybe it was December. I was on for, I don't know, two weeks, and then promptly got right off. Because part of my pattern, my wheel ruts, if you will, I use sex to dissociate. I have used sex to dissociate in the past. A quick refresher on wheel ruts. I've talked about this before. One of the, the trips I got to take with my family, we would take very, very, very long road trips when I was growing up. One of them was kind of a big circuit of the West half of the United States and visiting major historical landmarks, historical for white people, including the Oregon Trail. And I think the part that we saw was in like Nebraska and the wheel ruts are still there. Like 150 years later, the wheel ruts are still there from the wagons going over the same place over and over and over again. So many wagons making that journey. And if you've ever played the delightful game, the Oregon Trail video game, one of the things that happens is you can break an axle because if you are in those ruts, it's so much easier to just stay in the ruts than to try to get your wagon out of the ruts, which is how you break an axle or break a wheel or tip your wagon over. Because these aren't just like little tiny ruts. These are like inches deep and narrow and very hard to get out of. And my brain has ruts like this. Just if I don't do anything, this is where my brain will go. If I do not attempt any sort of intervention or use any skills, this is where my brain will go on its own. In the same way that on the Oregon Trail, you could hook your horses or your oxen or whatever up to your wagon once you're in those ruts and let them go and you would make it to Santa Fe or I guess Oregon. <laughs> confusing the Santa Fe Trail with the Oregon Trail. But like, you wouldn't have to steer. Like, that's where your wagon's going to go because it can't physically go anywhere else. And if you wanted to go someplace else, oh, the amount of work you'd have to do to get your wagon out of those ruts. Left to my own devices, I will use dating apps to find people to have anonymous sex with. And... I do it as a, a way of escaping, of not feeling, for the oblivion of dissociating, for the ease of like, oh, I can just check out and stop working so hard. Because it is, it is work. This shit is work. I don't get to like go on autopilot all that often because autopilot typically involves my ruts of dissociation and judging and not accepting and being angry and frustrated and resentful. I'm using anger as a way of asserting my boundaries rather than communicating with words and requests. Left to my own devices, I'm snarky and passive aggressive and deeply pessimistic. And it's these fucking ruts, man left to my own devices, I would be self-harming right now and choosing to practice skills instead of sticking to my ruts requires a lot of energy. 
and intention and attention, like paying attention. And I'm fucking tired, man. And one of the things that's frustrating about all of this is I have become more skillful at communicating how I feel and what's going on internally. And there's a downside to that. You wouldn't expect there to be, but there is. That because I've become more effective at actually using words to describe how I feel, I sound like I'm okay, (laughs) even when I'm using words to describe how not okay I am. This is in stark contrast to previously when, if I was not okay, I would be self-harming or having a very noisy, crying, yelling-filled meltdown. I would be blaming a lot of people, judging a lot, yelling about how much everybody else is to blame for my emotions rather than taking any responsibility for them myself. And at least in that state, people believed me when I said I was in distress. It's hard now, actually, to communicate the distress using just words. I feel very isolated. I feel very alone. And I know that there are bits and pieces that other people can understand. I know other people who also are dealing with childhood trauma. I know other people who are dealing with chronic illness. I know other people who are dealing with mental disorders and people who are unpacking the impact of growing up evangelical people who are unpacking the impact of purity culture and homophobia. Like, there's a lot of overlap. And there's still some aspects that are really fucking isolating. (laughs) Or I just kind of feel like I'm out here all on my own, even though I'm not the only one doing the work. I struggle with not wanting to do, like, the whole oppression Olympics thing of comparing not even just depression, but just kind of shit, you know, trauma Olympics or hardship Olympics. There are ways I invalidate myself by comparing myself to somebody else. And I'm like, well, who am I to complain? I'm bi, which means that most of the time I'm straight passing. Maybe I'm pan. I don't know which word I like better. But at any rate, I'm straight passing. On a good day, I am... (laughs) I appear abled. My disabilities are invisible for the most part. And still, there are times when I feel very, very, very isolated. And on the one hand, digging down and finding the splinter theoretically suggests the possibility of relief that might come soon. Like, hey, we found it. Let's pull it out. But oftentimes, it turns out it's not just a splinter, it's a fucking redwood. And we're like, we're going to start pulling, and we're going to find more branches, and we're going to find more roots, and we're going to find all sorts of things. And it feels never-ending. I have the thought that it will be never-ending. I have the thought that this is how my life will be. And the this, getting specific here, is exhausting, frustrating, isolating, I'm having the thought that it will just be, it will be a slog ongoingly, and I'm about to start exposure therapy. And that has also been really isolating. 
you know, I've been sharing with folks that I'm about to start it. I've spent the last month or so with my therapist doing all the prep work, like getting, identifying therapy, interfering behaviors, and putting in plans to address those things and doing homework to beef up places where I have skills gaps and everything else. And I've been, you know, sharing with some friends that this is about to start. And I'm having the thought that people are not reacting proportionately to this news that I'm about to start exposure. Because in terms of how it feels, I have never engaged in self-immolation, but it feels like what I imagine self-immolation would feel like, setting myself on fire. And I've been telling people it's about to happen, and they're like, oh, well, that's a bummer, or that sounds hard. <laughs> and I'm like, why are people not freaking out? <laughs> and I get that, like, I'm trying to be calm about it. Like, I'm not trying, I'm trying very hard not to hyperbolize, not to blow it out of proportion. Really what it is, is lighting myself on fire and letting myself burn until I get to the point where I realize I'm not actually on fire. And I'm going to like, I'm going to record stuff and play it for you and like demonstrate it and everything else. And I'm, I know I'm making it sound like it's absolute torture and it's not torture. It's pain with a purpose. It's digging out the splinter. And it is incredibly scary. And it is incredibly painful. Very uncomfortable. It's doing surgery without anesthesia. Because the point of it is to feel the pain. And that pain is so fucking isolating. Because that pain is so specific to me. It's my pain. I'm guessing that if anybody else listens to my exposure sessions, it's not going to occur to anyone else as triggering. It's just me. Which is a very lonely place to be in. Like talking to my sisters, we all have different triggers from our parents. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. And it's lovely when they do, because then you have somebody else who gets what my experience is like. And when they don't overlap, then I start having the thought that I'm insane. I've been having that thought a lot lately. That it's all in my head. That I made it all up. I've been Googling derealization. I doubt my reality so fucking much. I doubt my memory. I doubt what I see. I doubt what I hear. I feel insane a lot of the time. Absolutely batshit crazy. Like I'm having the thought that if people actually knew what I felt like inside, they'd go running for the hills. I have been shocked and dismayed by how often I'm having the thought that all of this makes me undateable, unlovable. It sucks to be working this hard and have it not be enough. Well, now that I am like 
down in my little wheel rut, let's pull out some turning of the mind, shall we? Turning the mind step by step. So there's a note that I have written on my handout here. It says, we can't make ourselves accept anything. The only thing to do is accept this present moment. All you can do is turn your mind towards acceptance. And again, the choice to accept does not itself equal acceptance. Just puts you on the path. So, turning the mind step by step. Observe that you are not accepting. <laughs> Look for anger, bitterness, annoyance, avoiding emotions, saying, why me? Why is this happening? I can't stand this. It shouldn't be this way. So those are things to look for. Phrases that are kind of like my, my go-to. Um, in this case, these examples here, the why me, why is this happening? I can't stand this. It shouldn't be this way. Those aren't mine. Mine are things like, I'll never get better. It will be this way forever. It will always be this hard. No one will want me. So I'm observing that I am not accepting. There, I have done step one. I'm observing that I am not, in this precise moment, accepting. Step two, go within yourself and make an inner commitment to accept reality as it is. Okay, so I'm going to do some willing hands here for a second. And I'm having all sorts of judgments come up here. I'm like, this is bullshit. Really? This is your, this is your evidence-based suggestion to go within myself and make a fucking inner commitment? What the fuck is that? And when I sit and think about it, I'm like, well, I know what that is. I know what a commitment is. And I know what like going within myself is mostly just me having the thought. And um, like I said, I think in episode 16, I'm practicing accepting. So I'm practicing making a commitment to accept reality as it is. I'm not even accepting. I'm not even practicing accepting. I'm practicing making a commitment to accept reality as it is. I'm going to need to do that pros and cons bullshit. God damn it. It's not bullshit. It's actually very helpful. We talked before about the pros of accepting and the cons of rejecting reality. Rejecting reality doesn't change reality. Changing reality requires first accepting reality. Rejecting reality turns pain into suffering. Refusing to accept reality can keep you stuck in unhappiness, bitterness, anger, sadness, shame, and other painful emotions. So what's the pro of accepting? Acceptance may lead to sadness, but deep calmness usually follows. This is Distress Tolerance Handout 11, part of it at least. I am practicing making a commitment to accept reality. Like, I know this. I know this internally, that rejecting reality is, it's a toddler's solution. It's a tantrum. This isn't going the way I want it to. 
I refuse to acknowledge how it actually is. No, 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 me, 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 me. And I notice resistance to accepting reality. The thought that is coming up is, no one will believe me. That's been coming up a lot. Which, of course, is the thought that someone has who has been invalidated for the majority of their life. It's just, it's just, sadness is coming up. Um, no one, no one will believe me. No one's gonna believe the pain, my pain, how hard I'm working. I think this is one of the, the cons of acceptance for me is that typically acceptance looks like a duck. If you've ever seen a duck in water, on the surface, they look totally chill. And if the water is clear enough, you can see that under the surface, their feet are going a mile a minute. And acceptance is just, it feels like absolutely invisible work. Like, imagine the Olympics are on right now. I think they're still on. But like, imagine running a fucking marathon and the only part anybody witnesses is five minutes after you've finished. (laughs) You know, you're sitting on the ground eating a protein bar and drinking water and there's no evidence of the fact that you just ran 26.2 miles or whatever a marathon is. And I'm very aware of how attached I am to being seen, to having things documented and acknowledged again. This is, these are the concerns of someone who's been validated a lot. That's a big con for me. All of this work, and it's not accolades I'm after. It's not applause or a trophy or a shout out or any of that. It's being seen, being witnessed. Like there's somebody who is there to to watch and observe. I've been thinking a lot about the um, Jewish tradition of sitting shiva. You know, when you people go and sit with a grieving family after a loved one has died, people outside the family come and sit with the family for like a week or something. I'm, I don't know the the details of it, not being Jewish myself, but um, it's not like they're doing anything. The people who are sitting shiva aren't coming and building a patio or anything. Literally, it's called sitting. You're just there sitting and witnessing somebody else's grief. I literally have the thought all the time that if there isn't documentation of it, if nobody saw it, it means it didn't happen. Around my own experiences, I have that thought. And acceptance feels very scary feels really threatening to me because it's like the ultimate way of making something invisible and having the thought that it makes things invisible because it removes the suffering. It removes the bargaining, the denial, the rage, the tantrum. It doesn't remove the pain, but it removes the noisiness of the pain, I guess. That's the thought I'm having. I just had a really painful thought of 
of having the thought that acceptance makes me invisible. Well, that would hurt a lot. Like, it's really important to me that I'm witnessed, that someone sees me. I mean, I think that's, I know that's one of the big reasons why I self-harmed. Since we're talking about that, let's pull that out real quick here. This is so telling. I keep finding these little, like, little neon signs that are like, wow, Joy, you deal with invalidation. This is part of the poem I wrote about my PTSD and rape and everything. This is the part, the chapter on self-harm, and I'm just going to read one stanza. I can't get the words right here. I can't quite write what I want to hear. It's all fact and theory and exposition, and none of it really puts anyone else in my position. I can't make you feel the way I felt. I can't make you deal with it the way I dealt or didn't. And that's why the scars are my pride. Because it's possible that I lied about everything else. I can fake panic, fake anxiety, fake the very thing that happened to me. But this pain that I've carved in my skin, it's the only thing that can begin to communicate what's going on within me. It looks exactly right, and that's why I call it pride. I've carved myself into the perfect sculpture made not out of clay or stone or mortar, but out of my hurt, my disappearance, my dissolution. I've not broken so much as undergone evolution. I'm totally other, but my new reflection at least matches my disconnection. I look at myself in the mirror now, and I'm actually delighted by how it's exactly right. The image I see. I've carved myself into accuracy. I look on the out, how I feel on the in. Just look, it's marked on my skin. Quite clearly terrified of having all of this be invisible. The idea of doing all of this work and having it be unseen feels like some sort of existential torture. I think the torture that is of particular concern to me right now is the idea that all of this is invisible. And my pain is invisible. The work I'm doing around it is invisible. That I, myself, am invisible. Oh, shit. Ah, just had a piece click into place here. I've noticed I avoid calling people because calling them and having them not answer I haven't had this experience in a while because I haven't really called anyone in a while, but I used to have times where I'd call one person and they wouldn't pick up. So I'd call another person and they wouldn't pick up and I'd go through like four or five people and no one would pick up. And I'm remembering right now, this is like a recovered memory, having the thought that I'm invisible, that I don't exist in those moments. The first time I had a psychotic break and took myself to the ER I had a a break because I, I mean, there was a whole series of events that led up to it, but kind of the kicker was reaching out to everybody that I knew and more specifically, everybody I knew that I thought would be awake and nobody answered the phone. And it was like 1130 at night. So it wasn't like absurdly late, but it wasn't super early. But that experience in and of itself was really destabilizing. 
Well, this is interesting information about myself. Turning the mind. I am practicing making a commitment to accept reality as it is. Step three here is do it again, over and over. Keep turning your mind to acceptance each time you come to the fork in the road where you can reject reality or accept it. Step four is develop a plan for catching yourself in the future when you drift out of acceptance. This is why it's easier to do all of this, like to push the glass away from the edge of the table before it falls, because it's a lot more challenging to catch it in the air before it hits the ground. And I've been, you know, practicing turning the mind intermittently for the last couple weeks, but I catch it early. (laughs) This time we're flying through the air, plunging towards the ground. I am practicing making a commitment to accept reality as it is. Oh, I don't have to accept anything about the future, except for what we have here. There are limitations on the future for everyone, but only realistic limitations need to be accepted. I really don't know how the future is going to go, so I don't have to accept hardly anything about the future. All of these things that I'm afraid might happen. I'm afraid that acceptance will mean I'm invisible, and all this work is invisible. That's all future-based. I don't know that acceptance will make me invisible will make all this work invisible, will make my pain invisible. I'm having the thought that that might happen. I'm having the emotion of fear, anxiety around that thought. I'm afraid that that might happen. And I don't have to accept anything about how the future will go. I don't know that accepting will make me invisible. I am practicing making a commitment to accept reality as it is. Why the fuck does this shit work? Like, I'm actually feeling quite calm right now. I don't know if it was actually, like, listening to the thoughts that came up, acknowledging them, because that's part of the problem, right? I have these thoughts come up, these concerns, and then I try to repress them because I'm like, don't worry about it, Joy, it's going to be fine, don't worry about it, which is thinking mind trying to, like... (laughs) cap the well, but actually listening to the thoughts, not listening in the sense of allowing them to steer the boat here, but listening in so much as acknowledging them, like, oh, that's a thought I'm having, is what allowed me to identify that I'm afraid of what might happen if I practice acceptance. And I don't have to accept anything about how the future is going to go. The only things I have to accept are the past and the present. The past is already done and immutable. And the present is right this second. I am practicing making a commitment to accept reality as it is. What the fuck just happened? Okay, I'm going to have to listen back to this in like a month and try to understand why I just got super calm. (laughs) Well, step four, develop a plan for catching yourself in the future when you drift out of acceptance. Fuck, I guess (laughs) doing what I just did 
pulling out, turning the mind, and doing it. <laughs> doing the skill step by step. Here's one observation I'll make, and then I'm going to go to bed. The first step is observe that you're not accepting. I think that's really important. I notice, at least for me, lack of acceptance really is me trying to cap the well. That's a Deepwater Horizon reference. If you remember when the oil drilling rig in the Gulf of Mexico exploded and dumped a bunch of oil, they were trying to cap the well. They were trying to put a lid on a geyser of oil. And when I am not accepting, I'm doing that with all of my thoughts. It's like, don't think that, don't think that, don't pay attention to that, don't listen to that. No, 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 no. Push it down, push it down, push it down. All of those thoughts are trying to do something for me. And if I'm in pain around them, they're trying to alert me to something that's wrong. And by pushing them down, I am not addressing the things that are wrong. And clearly, somewhere in there was the thought that acceptance will make me invisible. And actually listening to that thought made a difference. Not listening to it in so much as like letting it drive the boat. Just acknowledging it, hearing it, and be like, oh, that's a future-based concern. We don't have to accept anything about how the future is going to go. Why the fuck does this shit work? Like, I actually feel okay right now. What the fuck? Like, I'm actually kind of cheerful. <laughs> I don't understand what just happened. Okay, I'm gonna stop. What the fuck? I'm like... Is this magic? It's weird. Okay. All right. I'm going to go now. Bye. Welcome back to the present. I had a really hard time editing this episode because as you noticed from what you just heard, uh, it takes me a long time to actually get to using the skill because I'm describing where I'm at. And it was hard to listen to. <laughs> it was hard for me to listen back to it. I kept having the thought, come on, Joy, stop beating around the bush. And then I had an epiphany. I noticed that in the first half, I was speaking in a lot of analogies. And that's kind of normal for me, I guess. I use a lot of analogies or metaphors or similes or whatever. And I hadn't noticed this before. It's really obvious now. I have a really hard time accessing words to describe my emotions or my experience accurately in a way that other people will understand it. I have a hard time naming emotions. I have a hard time identifying body sensations. I've been practicing a ton since I first did um, the DBT skills group um, for a year in 2016 and 17, and it really doesn't come natural to me. Like I had to, <laughs> I basically had to learn from a book that has a list of synonyms and what each emotion feels like in your body and what urges come with it and what thoughts come with it, etc. Uh, so listening back to these recordings of all of my podcasts to date, I'm surprised by how often I use analogies to describe my experience. And of course, that's a coping mechanism because I often don't have the words for how I'm feeling. And I'm also really incredibly grateful when somebody else can put into words 
the experience that I'm having, which is why that Twitter thread from Sacral Empress was such a big deal for me. It's like, oh my God, she put it perfectly. And in that same vein of how long it took me to actually get to this skill, I was having a lot of judgment as I was listening back to it and realized I was trying to do something. I was trying to do the first step of turning the mind, which is to observe that you're not accepting. So a lot of the first half of the recording is me making observations about where I'm not accepting. And it took a while. (laughs) And this is a trend I've seen in other episodes of this podcast when I've used other skills. Like the first step of practicing radical acceptance step-by-step on um, Distress Tolerance Handout 11b is observe that you are questioning or fighting reality. And it has taken me a long time on those other episodes when I've used radical acceptance. It takes a long time for me to actually observe that I'm resisting or questioning reality. And it kind of feels like digging down to a dinosaur skeleton using only a toothbrush. Like it's not immediately accessible to me. I have to kind of take away a little bit at a time, layer by layer. And then once I do get down there, like once I've done step one, the observation step, all the other steps happen pretty quickly. Like I can get through them much faster. It's just that first fucking step that takes me so long. And finally, I had to listen back to the second half of that recording a couple times, paying particular attention to when I was actually using the skill, because you heard me, (laughs) it kind of cracked me up. You heard me in the recording be super confused as to why the fuck it worked. And I think the guess I made towards the end of that recording nailed it. I had this sudden realization that I don't have to accept anything about the future. And hopelessness is, of course, future-based. The worries that I described that acceptance will make me invisible and it will make all my work invisible, those are also future-based. And actually acknowledging those thoughts instead of suppressing them allowed those thoughts and the accompanying emotions to kind of just move and get out of my body. So identifying the thoughts that I was avoiding and the emotions that I was avoiding, ah, it's weird. It totally cleared everything out, like pulling a big hairball out of a drain or undamming a river. Everything that was stopped up just moved right on through until there was nothing left. (laughs) Seriously, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, It doesn't make any sense to my highly westernized highly capitalistic, highly puritanical brain, because I kind of always figured that if you want something to stop, you punish it. You ignore it. You don't talk to it. You don't examine it. You certainly don't feel it. And yet, here we are. Acknowledging the thoughts actually works. What the fuck? (laughs) Uh, Someday I'm going to need to do an episode on why I get so angry when therapy skills actually work. Today is not that day. Today I get to sign off and go do exposure homework. But yeah, I think that would be a useful thing to examine because I've encountered other people who have a similar kind of response to therapy skills working. 
Yeah, it seems to be a fairly common experience. There's something annoying about it. Alrighty. Anywho, I get to go do exposure homework now, so lucky me. Thank you so much for listening, and I would love to hear about your experience of using these skills or any questions you have or comments, concerns, you name it. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Let's Therapize. And my email is therapies at joygerhard.com. Okay, so I'm just going to do my standard ending and end this super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.